0: So we're going to start by reading Acts chapter 2 starting at verse 42. In my Bible it says, "The fellowship of the believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and" they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah, I'm going to keep that open for now because there are a couple of things I want to come back to in there. But I want to start by asking you a question. I I tried to emphasize the word awe as I was reading the passage to you. And I want to ask you, when's the last time you really experienced awe? Like, awe because something was really terrifying or something maybe was really unbelievably beautiful because I think all can classify as one or the other it can be both Uh, all in a terrible way for example I yesterday uh, I was admiring the beautiful blue sky and the cool crisp morning and and you know I don't know about you but as the summer days wane and And the heat is just becoming oppressive and I'm tired of the dry grass and the dry ground and the heat and the humidity and all this and I'm ready for a cool fall like day. And we had one of those yesterday and the skies were blue and I remember a day just like that 19 years ago. And I woke up with joy because it was finally a break from the heat and a beautiful crisp clear golden sun and a blue sky and and the terrorist attacks hit. It was September 11th, 2001. That was awe. That was a terrible kind of awe that we all felt as we watched our TVs and tried to grasp the enormity of what had happened and what continued to happen throughout the day. And then there's another kind of awe that you may have experienced like me, where you've been out in a place in the wilderness that is so separated from the light pollution that you know clutters up our skies that you could actually see all the stars you could even see the milky way when i lived out in oklahoma there were times when i could go out into the country on a moonless night and i could lay in the back of my pickup truck and look up at the stars and it was awesome the awe that i felt was overwhelming it's uh it reminds me of something funny that happened to me once. I was in the—I used to do a lot of backpacking with my friend, and uh, in, in uh, an old high school buddy of mine, and we were backpacking in the Cascade Mountains of, of uh, Washington State, and and we'd started in a high pass and and hike for hours through these these trees you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees and they're all the little ones are 20 feet in diameter and two feet 200 feet tall I mean these massive trees and we're walking in this deep dark forest primeval and then we came out into this golden meadow on the side of the mountain and the sky was beautiful blue and the 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 sun made the the weeds and the and the wildflowers in this meadow just just pop with with light and and looking down I could see this white watered mountain stream and and looking up to the left I could see this tall purple mountain with snow on it and and up to my right was the one I'm walking on and and there's the the changing of the layers of of, uh, vegetation you know and and then to the rocks and then to the snow and to this blue sky and and off in the distance on the other side of this meadow is another deep primeval forest and and I'm just standing there in complete awe And my friend, who has a really dry sense of humor, comes up behind me and he says, Not that pretty. Of course, he knew it was. But he liked to say things like that when it looked like I was overwhelmed by what I was seeing. And that's really the gist of the word awe, isn't it? It inspires us to stop. It turns off what we have like that static that's been going on in the sound system, that noise in our heads all turns off the noise, all makes us stop what we're doing and take notice. And it stirs not only our spirit, but our body reacts to it, right? That's awe. Now I'm going to ask you a really hard question. This is a hard question if you think about it, because I'm going to ask you, especially if you've been going to church all your life, When's the last time you were awestruck in church? When's the last time you were awestruck in a Sunday school class? Awestruck in a small group gathering, maybe at someone's home? Awestruck in your private study of the word? When's the last time you felt awe associated with our religious activities? When you were going to church for a religious activity when 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 you were participating in the life of Shiloh Church, for any reason at all, when's the last time you experienced awe that 's a hard question because I expect most of us are thinking i don't know now, my whole purpose throughout the summer it really started with the shutdown, but You know, God gave me time to get my spirit ready, so as I was finishing the series that I'd been working on when the shutdown happened in March, and it got me through Easter and all that, after Easter, I had a plan for the summer, and it was gonna be, look what's happened. We've been thrown into the wilderness, and what happens in the wilderness is what we talked about all summer long, right? Now we're heading into the fall, and I'm talking about the Acts of the Apostles. And this is God-inspired, I believe, because what we're really trying to do is work out What God means for us to take away from this experience as a family of faith here at Shiloh. I mean, I feel like that's my job is to help us in that direction. You'll go home and you'll figure out how you're going to reorient your family according to this change in life. And you're going to go home and you're going to figure out how to do your job differently because of all of this. You know, so each of us is doing that. But here in our collective gathering and journey as a family of faith at Shiloh, I'm trying to help us frame what we're supposed to take away from this. And what I feel is that God is calling us to the promised land where we live the faith that brought us together in the first place. When the doors were opened. When people gathered in Jesus' name. And what better place to see what that looks like than the Acts of the Apostles. So we do a little Bible study here for a minute. One of the things we'll remember from last week is that Luke the Apostle wrote the Acts of the Apostles and therefore we kind of refer to Luke and Acts as one book with two parts. So the Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus and then the Acts of the Apostles is the story of the people changed by Jesus and how that started. And it's the story of the church or the the birth of the church. And Luke is a really skillful writer. You've probably noticed that on Christmas Eve when we always read Luke's account of the birth of Jesus because it's the pretty one that Linus always quotes on the Charlie Brown Christmas. It's beautiful. Even though it's been translated from the original language, it's still beautiful. And this is because he's such a skillful, spirit-led writer. And so keeping that in mind, we do our literary criticism, which is a, a form of Bible study where we look at the literary organization of the word in the Bible. And what we will notice is that Luke is very methodically laying out the course of the Acts of the Apostles to illustrate a point that he made at the beginning Of the Acts of the Apostles. In journalism school they teach you to write everything people need to know in the first paragraph and then spend the rest of the document breaking down the parts of the first paragraph into more detail. Luke does this in a sense in the first probably what was a page in his writing it was probably one scroll or one page. And what he says to us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is that the words of Jesus in the very beginning of his book about the life of the church, he quotes the words of Jesus where Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Luke is telling us that this is what Jesus told them to do, and then he proceeds to explain how all of those things happened. He explains that the Holy Spirit came upon them, and so chapter 2 of X tells us all about the day the Holy Spirit came. Then the very next thing he does is explain to us what we just read, which is how the church in Jerusalem was born, and how it operated. So the first thing that happens in Luke's account is the first thing that he said Jesus told them to do. Tell about him in Jerusalem. And so the first thing we're learning about is how the church operated in Jerusalem. Then the big picture of the remainder of this book is in the same succession. How the Acts of the Apostles describes then Judea, Samaria, and the world. By the time we get to the end of the Acts of the Apostles we have the story of the original church the first apostles, the the original apostles making Jesus's command happen. Get it? So keeping that in mind we don't want to look at what we're reading in here about Jerusalem as an exclusive representation of church. It's contextual. It's telling us about what happened in Jerusalem, where the church got its legs, where the church really started. So what do we notice when we read this passage then about the church in Jerusalem? We see that the people gathered there were Jews who believed in Jesus. They became believers in Jesus as their Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for. They would have called him Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. They would have called him that because that's what they believed. And so they were a fellowship of Jews who believed that he was and is the Messiah. And so that's what they gathered for. And they gathered at the temple. And everything they said, did, and continued to do inspired awe and caused other Jews to believe. So there's the story in a nutshell. To give it some context for us, let's talk about this in a different way for just a minute. Some of you have probably had similar experiences to what I'm going to describe, but you know as a Christian man and a pastor, I have been to countless conferences, workshops, events, whatever you want to call them. I've been to things like Promise Keepers, where 70,000 men show up in the old Hoosier Dome, right, in Indianapolis. I've been every year to annual conference of the United Methodist Church in Indiana, and, and I've been to, to uh, all sorts of, of, uh, of similar activities where it's planned and, you know, there are thousands of participants and we're all gathering for a religious purpose. So I'm going to give you a generic description of what I think happened every time there was a festival, one of the major festivals in Jerusalem, using modern terminology, okay? So I'm going to give you a modern version of Pentecost, Passover, or one of the other religious festivals that happened in Jerusalem. First thing happens is the event is announced a year ahead of time. So everybody knows when the date's going to be. And so they mark their calendars and they start saving their money so they can go. They start talking to other people who are planning to go and they work out their travel arrangements. And and the rich people, they get a luxury bus, you know, and the poor churches, uh, eight or ten of them pile into a car that's got room enough for four. And they, you know, probably aren't speaking the language that is most common in our country. But they all go. They all make their way cross-country to Indianapolis, to the old Hoosier Dome, or to Lucas Oil Stadium, or to the convention center up there in Indianapolis. They all make their way from far-flung places to this location. And when they get there, they've booked a hotel room that gave a discount rate because of the festival. But in fact, it's still a heck of a lot more expensive than it is here. And the restaurants are offering specials because, after all, you're here for the religious activity. And of course, it's still more expensive there than it is here. And then there's parking and lodging and the hotels and and there's all the the street vendors, you know, the the food trucks and and the various vendors and protesters and that kind of thing that are gathered in different places around the venue, right? And then when you get to the venue, you walk in the door and there are directional signs, there are check-in tables, there are opportunities to buy things that will make your experience more, there's the gift bag with all the junk in it that you are gonna take home and give to your children, and all the papers you're gonna read but you never really get around to reading, right? And then, and then you go in, and in the inner, on the inner courts that surround the place where the plenary gathering is going to be, there are vendors. And they're selling you the latest book by one of the key speakers at the event. They're selling you all sorts of religious paraphernalia. Why, they've even got the Jesus commemorative beer cans. Right? Okay? This is what it's like to go to one of these kinds of events. And then what you see are people who never seem to leave the, the courts. They're always out there where the vendor area and the food area is and out on the sidewalks outside and they're always just chattering away about things that don't have anything to do with their purpose and inside there are people who are participating in the religious activity, whatever it is, and whenever you try to create an event like that that's going to accommodate thousands of people who are coming from all different levels of society, who are coming from different walks of life, who are coming from different parts of the country, whose religious beliefs are a little different from some of the other people there. What do you do? You create something that's very generic. Promise Keepers was a great example of that. I went to Promise Keepers, there's like 70,000 men there, and the music's really good and inspiring, but it doesn't say anything specific that might cause this group to disagree with that group. And in the same way, the preaching and the teaching is sort of watered down so that it doesn't offend anybody and hopefully inspires as many as possible. It's good in its intention, you understand, but it's still a religious activity for a large, diverse group of people, so it's been watered down. And it is, for all intents and purposes, a place where a lot of posturing and positioning is done. Starting with the people on the platform and the dais, the people who are center stage the people who are the the background people on the stage and then it works its way out the ones with the seats that are the most ideal all the way to the you remember we used to call them the Bob Euchre seats right that's a long time ago George but you know what I'm talking about the people who are way up there where everything down on the floor looks like a bunch of little ants and and all of them are there and the same kind of posturing and positioning is happening out in the halls in the little political discussions that are going on here and over there. It's all about which hotel you're staying in. It's all about which restaurants you're going to. And you know what's really amazing? There are people who live for this. They look forward to it every year. They can't wait to go to the next annual conference. They can't wait to go to the next festival. They live for this stuff. But then when they go back home, they live like whatever they did didn't make any difference at all. They went through the motions. They did what was supposed to be done. This is what it would have been like, I'm sure, for you to go to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Expensive hotels, expensive restaurants, positioning and posturing, politics and irrelevant religion, and a whole lot of religious activity that seems meaningful on the surface but doesn't seem to make a dang bit of difference, right? This is what it would have been like And then this really strange thing happens. This one Passover, no one's ever forgotten it because this is the one where that Jesus of Nazareth showed up, stirred everything up, and they killed him. But a bunch of people say he rose from the dead and he's alive. And those people are gathered here at the temple too. So when the vendors pack up and go home, when the hotels go back to their usual business or get reset for the next festival, when all the religious activity is over and the people go back home, there's this one group that's having a kind of like sit-in, and they're still there. It's all over, but they're still there, and they're meeting every day at the temple. And they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching because they're the next best thing to Jesus himself. They devoted themselves to their fellowship, to the love they shared with each other because of the love that saved them through Christ. And then they broke bread together. There was bread in the temple, you know. It was called the show bread, and it was only handled by priests. But these guys were breaking bread together as though they had similar authority to priests. And then they prayed together. And they did this every time they got together. And every time they got together, miracles happened. And people were inspired. They were just awestruck. They saw religious leaders that they knew were well-educated and convicted and convinced of their religious authority and the old Jewish law giving themselves to this new system of belief based on Christ. That was what happened in Jerusalem during stage one of the Jesus plan of salvation of the world. The Jews had to be converted. And they were a tough nut to crack, as you know. But awe-inspiring fellowship happened, and people gave in. Now, here's the other thing you need to know. In every awe-inspiring moment, there's always some jerk that sneaks up behind you and says, not that pretty. Saw one just about two weeks ago, It looked just as good as that one. There's always somebody like that. And some people just can't be awe-inspired. They can't be awestruck. It doesn't matter what happens around them. The Holy Spirit shows up and they didn't miss it. They're looking the other way when the Spirit goes by right behind them. And this is what happened in Jerusalem. So some people were awestruck by the beauty and remarkable love that was being expressed there. They were awestruck because here, instead of a system that was driven by greed and pride and marketing and commercialism, instead, these people are caring for one another with the depth of love that didn't make any sense. When they would look at them and they'd see the guy from the really nice neighborhood who came in the big bus. Given everything he has on him to one of the guys who came in the little car with too many people in it. Because of pure love. They look at that with awe. Dare I say, awe. Couldn't help it. I said I wasn't going to do it, but I did it. And And, and what happens? They have to stop for a moment, stop what they're thinking, stop assuming things, and go, wow, what just happened? See, that, that's, what, that's what's going on here in this story. And I think that's what's supposed to happen at church. I think that's what we're supposed to be. So we have this vision statement here that I kind of came up with, and everybody said, yeah, it sounds good to me, Dan. And then they got behind it, and, and it's the statement that says... We are going to be vital to the well-being of this community through our Christian discipleship. In other words, we're going to take everything we have available to us and we're going to make it available to the community and we're going to do it with the love of Christ in our hearts so that they might be awestruck by the work of the Spirit in our midst. So sometimes during this pandemic, this room becomes an extension of our local courts because we offered help, and they took us up on it. So sometimes, we use the resources we have that were made for our benefit, and we give them to people who don't have the same resources and need them. Because that's exactly what the disciples of Jesus do in the Bible. Because we're trying for that awe. We're trying to see if we can help people to be inspired with awe because they saw the presence of Christ in us and in our place of worship. That's the idea behind telling the story in Jerusalem. Our Jerusalem happens to be another J name. It's Jasper. So Jesus said to us... I just had a funny. I hope it's not as wrong as it sounds in my head. <laughs> Jesus saying to us, "Go tell them all about me in Jasper, Ireland, <laughs> Pike County, and the world." Right? That sounded funny in my head. You got to go with me on that, because because what Jesus was saying to them was, "Take it to your local community." And then take it to your region, take it to the neighborhood around here. Probably better would be Jasper, Du Bois County. But the idea was, and then Samaria was that place where, you know, people from Jerusalem would never go. So the whole point here is that it's done for love's sake. The same love that saved you from sin that you couldn't get rid of on your own. The Gospel story, the Bible story, is a story about how much God loves you and how much God wants to create the perfect companion for God's Son. And it's, this story of God's love is from the beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end and how God keeps taking away all of the limitations that prevent us from being the perfect companion for his Son. And... As he does so, he grows us up. So the people who were in the wilderness in the stories of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they were learning about really basic things because they were babes. And they were being raised and conditioned and prepared to be the bride of Christ. And by the time Christ comes, we are ready to be prepared to be his perfect companion. And what happens in the process is we begin to love him like he loves us. Because he loved you so much that he didn't want your sin to separate you from him, from his father. And so he takes your sin, which is a natural, natural ability that we have to resist God to turn worship into something that serves us and others like us. He takes that natural tendency out of us and gives us a conscience and a will to try to do it better. To worship God because we just can't help it. To love one another because we just can't help it. Husbands to honor their wives like Christ honors the church, his bride, because we just can't help it. You know, and, and that's what is supposed to happen. And when it happens, people can't help but notice. They just can't help noticing. And then they have to make a decision. In the Acts of the Apostles, after Peter preaches in verse 29 of... Uh, I'm not, sorry, not verse 29, but... Uh, oh, come on, Dan. Anyway, there's a place right here after Peter preaches where, uh, where the people look at him and they say, Brothers, what do we do? How are we supposed to respond to this? They are so overwhelmed. They're so blown away by what they've just seen and heard that they are awestruck. And they look to the apostles and they say, Brothers, what do we do? Well, how, do we, how do we respond to this? And the apostles say, Well repent of your sin, be baptized, and live your new life in Christ. That's what they tell them. It's still the same for us. When the awe hits and God becomes that real to you, the only response is to repent of your sin To accept Christ which is to be baptized in his name to be you know say I want to die to myself you know go under the water and it's like going in the grave you know and then come out of the water remade into a new creation and then you're born again and the Holy Spirit is now the blood of the Lord sort of coursing through your veins in your new life and that This is the thing that always brings awe to me. I I can't ever say this without feeling a sense of awe, without getting all tingly. And I I hope it does this for you too. But, But what the Apostle Paul says is, at that moment, you become equal in the eyes of God with his own son. You become his perfect companion because he made you perfect for that purpose. And when that happens, God sees you with the same love And perfect acceptance with which he sees his own son, Jesus Christ. Now, people who live like that just happened to them will definitely get everyone else's attention. And perhaps one of the reasons the Lord's letting the church go through this crud that we're going through right now in 2020 is because he's trying to call us home. You know, my favorite Bible story is the parable of the prodigal son. When Jesus tells that story, I, I, I weep and, and I get stirred inside with awe because of what it says so plainly. We were already, this child was already his son. He said, son, everything I have is yours. That's a given, and the son says, well, I'd like to take my share and go do my own thing. And so the father says, well, if you're sure that's what you want, go go ahead. And the son goes, and he blows it, ends up broken, repentant, and he decides that he'd rather be broken and repentant in his father's pig pen than some heathen's pig pen. And he goes home. And and I know I referred to this just last week, but it never gets old. He's repentant. He's, He's sure that he has done everything that would cost him his father's love, but he still cannot resist the urge to go home. And so on his way home, he's thinking, I'm going to tell my father I sinned against you. I've sinned against everything that's important, and all I ask is that you let me just be a slave in your household. And he crests the hill only to find that his father is running towards him. Beloved, that is exactly what God is saying to you today. Come home. I'm running to meet you. The distance is getting shorter all the time. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for showing up, for making your word known for the anointing that makes your heart and mind known to the hearts and minds of your people. Now glorify yourself through this word, by changing people's lives and inspiring the body of Christ so that they might be signs of awe and wonder. Because of you, we pray. Amen. Amen.